Good morning, church. A special thanks to Jansen. I appreciate you sharing your giftedness with us, man. This, I love the church here that says, if you're gifted, we want uh, your gifts to be received and used in this place. Thank you for your stories, too. You hear in stories like this, this is a church that isn't just marking time here. This is a church that every generation matters. We are all part of the body of Christ. You're not the future of the church. You are part of the church. And I'm grateful for that. Thank you for leading us more than just worship, just with your life as well. Um, as a lot of you guys know, if you've been here, we've been beginning this year thinking about what is it that God tells us is our identity and our purpose for being here. And we've talked about it several weeks, but especially on this particular Sunday, in just a few hours, people will spend billions of dollars to lie to you about who you are, and what will make you happy. Now, I love Super Bowl commercials too and all that kind of stuff. Sometimes it's better than the game because the Cowboys aren't there, right, Jeb? So it's all right, you know, we're looking for that. But trust me, billions of dollars will be spent to lie to you and to tell you you're not enough or you need something else and you need to buy somebody's product in order to be something. And I think it's all the more important to come to God and say through inspired scripture, through the leading of his Holy Spirit, let God look us in the eye and say, this is who you are and this is why you're here. We've been doing that for several weeks. We've been doing this for the book of Ephesians. And I've said before, the book of Ephesians lays out in six nice, neat chapters. We know the chapter headings were not in there originally, but the first three chapters, God specifically says, this is your identity. And then the last three chapters, we'll talk about how do you live that out. So a lot of you are doing action kind of people, and you might say, where's the action in all of this? Paul says, we'll get to that, but you don't ever act or perform initially with God, your performance and action comes out of your being before him. And so we spent some time letting God tell us who we are. And we saw in chapter one, we saw this incredible thing where God says, you are chosen for a purpose. You're chosen for a grand purpose in this world. You are extravagantly rich spiritually in Christ. You're alive in ways you never thought possible. And last week we we heard that we belong. We actually belong in a community together as God is restoring us and doing a restoration project better, bigger than anything we can imagine. And we'll let, get the last piece of that first part of our identity today. And if you have your Bibles and your devices, we will read in Ephesians chapter 3. Again, this is an overview of Ephesians. We can't look at every single thing. So I encourage you to go back and read the first six verses. We're going to jump over that. Paul puts it in context but we'll pick it up in verse 7. This is the word of the Lord. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 7. Paul says, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ. And to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom, confidence. I ask you, therefore, not 
to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your, for your glory. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that in Christ, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and high and long and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Have you ever faced a task that is absolutely overwhelming? Have you ever faced something? Have you ever felt called to something? I'm not just talking about a small thing. Maybe you felt called or compelled to get involved in something or to do something, and then when you got into it, you realized it was too big for the ability that you bring to the table. Any number of times and places we felt these moments, I, I remember as a child, oh, it's just a silly example, but I want you to kind of picture this feeling because maybe you've been there before. I can't remember how old I was, but I was, I was pretty small, and it was the first time that I had the responsibility alone to rake all the leaves in the backyard. Now, understand that may not be a big deal in some places in Texas, but I grew up in Virginia. We had these big leafy things, and in the fall, all the stuff falls down. And we had a big backyard, and there were leaves everywhere. And I didn't realize then, now what I know, why that task especially was perfectly wired to drive me nuts. Here's why, because I've told many of you now, I've since learned over the last many years that I am a recovering perfectionist. And I'm telling you the task of raking leaves is really hard for a perfectionist. I realize this, I go out there and I start raking the leaves and I get them in some piles and I realize I look over to where I'd already raked and there were more leaves on the ground. And my mom had sent me out before all the things had fallen down. So I look up and there are leaves still up there. I kid you not, I took a rake and I started swatting the branches to knock the leaves down so I'd get them all done. And by the time I'm doing that, the piles I already had, uh, the wind blew them around. That drew me nuts. And then I put them all together. And then the worst part of it is me alone with this garbage bag. And I'm trying to scoop up all the leaves into the bag. And if you ever try to do this, they're never all gone. And it drives me crazy. I know it's a silly example. Oh, by the way, I learned there was this wonderful invention called a lawnmower. <laughs> and so with a bag or a mulching mower, that's what I did in the future. But I'm telling you, I know it's goofy, but I will never forget the feeling I had. I, I can remember standing behind my back porch feeling small and overwhelmed for a task that I was given. Now, that's a silly moment. But here's the reality. In our lives, there come times and situations where we feel like that little child, and we feel it with things that are really, really important. Got a call a couple of weeks ago from a dear friend of mine in another state, and he has reached that stage in his life where he and his wife are parents of young children. 
Some of you are there. Some of you have been there. Some of you are yet to be there. But they called, he called, and he said, I'm just telling you, man, I feel like an absolute failure as a father. He said, I can't get my kids to listen to me. I get so frustrated, and, and I love them so much, and I get so angry and so frustrated sometimes, I feel like an absolute failure. He is called by God to be a parent. He's an amazing father, and he feels completely inadequate to the task. Have you been there before? Sometimes we get to places like that collectively as a community, part of a group of, of ministers and pastors around the country that meet on Zoom once a month, and we talk and we pray and we dream about uh, discipleship in our local groups. And, and, and one of my friends there is a minister of a church that reminds me of this one in its passion and purpose. Because this guy is part of a group of people that are not content to just kind of sit in the saved section until Jesus comes back. They actually want to make a mark and a difference in the world. And their particular spiritual community has a focus in their outreach in a three different areas. Uh, they want to reach out uh, to people who are poor, and they want to reach out to people who are in addiction, and they really want to reach out to people who are not uh, from a church background. Can you imagine the kind of um, chaos that they have to deal with? Can you imagine the big purses and the money strings that come into that? <laughs> and he said, look, we're struggling. We're struggling. We don't have a whole lot of money. We don't have a lot of, of, of volunteers that are working. And we get frustrated in their times when we just feel absolutely hopeless. Have you been at a place like that in your life? Where you feel called to something significant and meaningful, and yet you feel completely unable to carry out the task that you feel like God has put on your heart? Here's the thing, anybody that has ever tried to work in any way to bring healing and hope and to fix in any way the broken world in which we live has felt this way. And we come to this passage, and I think part of what Paul will do for us is speak identity and wisdom into people who feel unable and inadequate when they face the task of life. So how does Paul do this? As we begin, we've said this many times, it's often just as important how the Bible says something as what it says. And what's interesting to me here is that Paul, as he's unpacking the purpose and the plan of God, gives a telescopic vision of God's plan and purpose. Telescopic vision. What do I mean by this? I actually, again, I'm, I'm, I'm a nerd with learning sometimes, and I, I wanted to, I love the idea of astronomy and, and looking out in, in the world, in our universe, and I looked into how a telescope is made one time. And you would think, you know, it's just kind of the eyepiece that you look through that's right here. And then there's the, the, the lens that shoots you out into uh, the vast um, expanse of space. But really, there's this piece that really makes it work. It's called a Barlow lens. It's named after the one who made it. And, and Barlow lens, it's actually a little bit misleading because it's not just one lens. It's a whole kind of apparatus there with several lenses, a whole lens assembly that goes in between the, the front eyepiece and, and the main lens outside. And it magnifies the ability to see. It stretches the capacity to see deep into space. And I want to say what's been going on for the last three chapters in the book of Ephesians is Paul's version of a spiritual Barlow lens. In other words, he, he gives us one lens after another, and he keeps trying to stretch and expand our vision of God's purpose in the world. Let's just look at a couple examples, obviously leaning on the one that we just read in this passage, but... I've said, mentioned several times, a central passage in me is Ephesians 1, 9, and 10. If you remember that, the first lens that expands our picture of God's purpose. We're not just here to escape and run away to heaven one day. 
it says God's intent, the intent, the mystery that he is revealing to us is that God is bringing unity to all things. Do you feel the stretching of that? Unity to all things in heaven and on earth in Christ. That's pretty big. Then you look at chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, and he says it a slightly different way. He says, in the body of Christ, uh, God is intending to place there the fullness of him, listen to this language, who fills everything in every way. So the first lens says God's bringing unity to all things. And in this second lens that Paul puts in there, he said he's filling up everything. He's filling up empty things talked about this before that language takes us all the way back to God's creation in the original creation story the Holy Spirit of God hovers over a chaotic and empty world and then God in the creation story proceeds to fill it up with life and then when he commissions human beings for their purpose in the world he says to them now go be fruitful and multiply and what does he say fill the earth what's the second lens that Paul gives us to God's purpose. His intent is not just to unify all things, but to fill up the things that are empty and the places and the hearts and the lives and the world that are empty. And then here in chapter three, he slides in a third lens to help us just absolutely stretch our vision for what God's doing. You ready for this? Look at the language here. Ephesians three, starting verse 10. He said, God was God's intent. One more lens on God's purpose. God's intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God. I love the translation says the rich variety of God's wisdom might be known, hear me, to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. The rich, it is kaleidoscopically colored vision of God and purpose of God and intent of God might be known not just to other people not just to other churches in the world are you ready for this God says I'm doing something in the church that will be declared and displayed in the entire universe he says to the powers in the heavenly realms earlier on in the book that language is used for good angelic powers Later on in chapter 6, we'll see that those, that language is used for demonic and evil powers that are trying to tear up God's world. In other words, God says, do you realize that through you, in your lives and the Holy Spirit of God working in you, he is going to declare a message that will make angels stand in awe and will make demons shudder. Is that glorious or what? We've said it before. I love using this language. It's important to me to think about this. What does this mean? It means the church's purpose is a cosmic purpose. God is here to give a cosmic message to the entire universe. It's not just about me and Jesus under a tree. He's doing something for the entire created universe, and he's doing it through the church. Do I understand all of that? No. Do I get all of that? No. But take it in for a moment. He's expanding the vision of God's purpose and work. What does that mean? It doesn't mean we go preach to the devil or we scream at the spirits in the sky. That's not what it's talking about. Here's what's powerful to me. God says, you know how this works? Just by being the church that God created you to be. When God's spirit is working among his people just by being the church, it is declaring a message that has cosmic impact in the universe. Isn't that amazing? 
By the way, Paul has something in that very close lens in mind. In his setting, he's talking about Jews and Gentiles coming together for worship and mission in a world that was divided. You fill in the blanks of all the ways that we're divided in our world today. But Paul said when Jews and Gentiles came together and sold out together for the purpose of God in the world, the angels stood in awe and the demons shuddered with terror. Just by being the church. It's pretty amazing because it kind of takes some pressure off. Did you know you don't have to sit down and make a list of cosmic things you want to do in the universe? You can do that if you want. But by being the community of the people of God he created you to be, he will make a cosmic impact through you. In one sense, it's easier than you thought. But in another sense, I want to make clear that what we are called to do in Christ is impossible. Like, don't underestimate the magnitude, the cosmic magnitude of the task we're called to do. Let's just think about this thing that we talk about a lot, language of discipleship. We're here to be disciples who make disciples. What does that mean? I think a way, there's a lot of ways to simplify it. Here's a simple way to think about it. There are two tasks that we're called to in Christ. There's a lot more than that, but there's two basic tasks. The first one is to change, and the second one is to care. We're called in Christ to change. We're already accepted, by the way. We're in Christ. doesn't mean you have to change to be accepted by him. We're in Christ. We, we change by growing up. Paul's language, we grow up in Christ. Two things we do. We change, we grow, and we care about other people enough to help them grow. Does that make sense? Change and grow. Let's think for a moment. Don't brush past that. This is really hard to do. You ever thought about this? Let's just talk about change for a moment. My favorite stories in Christian history there's a guy named Augustine. He's a church leader in Africa many centuries ago, one of the greatest minds and leaders in Christian history. But he didn't start that way. In fact, he's very, very open about the struggles that he had in his life. And there were two major ways that the enemy attacked him. The first thing that was a continual struggle for him is he was an intellectual elitist. He was too smart for his own good. I know there's no problem with that in this community here. But just so you know, some people struggle with that. They can do it all on their own. They're brilliant people. He was. And he got power and prestige by his ability to think and his ability to speak. The other struggle he had was his disordered passions. He fathered a child out of wedlock. He struggled all the time with his passions. And he brought it to God. That's one of the things he struggled with. And one of the greatest prayers in Christian history, he talks about when he was younger, this was his prayer to God. Are you ready for it? Two lines. He said, Lord, make me chaste. Make me holy. Set me apart for your purposes. You ready for the second part? This is great. He said, Lord, make me chaste, but not yet. <laughs> is that great? Make me holy, but just not yet. Let me, let me kind of let me kind of do my thing for a while, then you come back and get me. And that's not just Augustine's struggle, that's all of our struggles. We, we, we want to be what God wants us to be, but it's hard to change sometimes. And we say, okay, God, mold us and change us and shape us, but can you give me a few years? <laughs> change is harder than we think. By the way, caring is harder than we think. In this community, maybe not. we got a DNA here of the Holy Spirit of God creating an outward focus among us. But it's still so easy to get wrapped up in what we think in our community, in our group. Never forget one time a guy named Bart came down to recruit what you guys do naturally. He was recruiting college students in Texas to go spend a summer doing some mission work, basically, in New York for a camp that they do for underprivileged, at-risk kids. 
And if you've ever been a part of one of these things where somebody's inviting you to go and do mission work, you know the deal, right? They'll sell it in all sorts of ways. And he's doing it, and he's showing pictures and how much fun it's going to be and how you're going to interact with friends. And, you know, you, you don't have to work all the time, so you can go down to New York City and do all this stuff. And then he caught himself, and he just stopped. And he said, it, it might just be because I'm tired. Can you give me a break, though? He said, he said I, I, can I just be honest for a moment? He said, what I, what I really want to say, I'm telling you all this great stuff, and it is true because Jesus says it's better to give than receive, and you're going to get all this great stuff. But he said, can I just be honest with you? He said, I'm tired of marketing compassion. I'm tired of selling service to people who are following the crucified Christ. He said, I'm tired of that. He said, I'm telling you all this stuff, but he said, what I really want to say is sometimes it's not about you. Sometimes it's about being and doing for someone else. Again, I'm preaching to the choir here, but it was powerful to hear him say that because it's hard to care. And that's not just Bart's message, by the way. That's the message of Christ. And we're sharing that message. And let's be honest, it's a hard sell sometimes. And if you're here and you're just kind of gathering here, you, you need to hear this. God says your reason for being on the planet isn't just about you. It's about other people too. And that's hard. We have a cosmic calling in our identity. And it's so important to get this, especially at the tail end of all the stuff we talked about before. Otherwise, when we think about all the great things, you know, we're rich and we're chosen, all that kind of stuff, we can fall into the danger of thinking this is just an extended Dr. Phil episode, spiritually speaking, right? Got a mentor of mine that says sometimes churches in their messages fall into doing nothing more than Dr. Phil with a Bible verse, that's not what's going on here. This isn't a pep rally with all the things you are. The identity we've been given in Christ comes with a cosmic calling attached to it. You are these things for a purpose that God says will resonate through the universe. Now, what do you do with a calling that big? I think about a lesson that I learned the hard way when I was a pretty new campus minister. Think about it. This is a principle that works for a lot of things in life. Any big task requires the right posture, right? Think about this. Any big task requires the right posture. You know this in military. You know this in working out. You know this in any number of things. You cannot tackle a weighty task unless you're set with the right posture for it. Again, I learned this as a young minister because there was one day where we were going to do one of the, like a, a little mission trip like you guys do, and we were going to go and sing and do some service and all that kind of stuff, and we had an old school box of books, the old, you know, the big old songs of faith and praise. There was a box of books in the 15 passenger van that we were going in, and I thought it would be a good idea, it's hard to simulate this here, to reach over uh, the, the uh, seat in the van and to pick up the box of books totally with my arm and my lower back. How well do you think that went? Now, people, don't, people didn't tell, you, tell me when I was in my 20s, I wouldn't listen anyway, that the stupid things I do in my 20s, I pay for the rest of my life. And so to this day, my back will still hurt from time to time because I did not have the right posture for such a weighty task. So think about this. God has given us a cosmic calling in Christ. What is the church's posture for such an enormous calling. Paul doesn't just tell us, he shows us. Because what did he do, guys? 
to make a cosmic impact in the world is a posture of dependence and surrender to the one who can do the work that he's called us to do. Dependence and surrender. He uses a couple different images here. In fact, he mixes his metaphors pretty quickly. He uses an agricultural and an architectural image back to back. He said, my prayer, my surrender to God is that he would make you rooted and established. Rooted like good plants, established like a good building foundation, rooted and established, please don't miss this, in the incomprehensible, unintellectually graspable love of Christ. Now why this is so important is because before we get to all the chapters on doing, you need to hear, God does not base his relationship or even his calling with you on your performance. He bases it on the indescribable, incomprehensible, boundless love of Christ. And if we can grasp that, which he says we cannot even begin to grasp, we need the Holy Spirit to implant God's love in us in such a way that then we are empowered to live out our calling. We are in a posture of dependence and surrender. We get on our knees to say, God, would you pour out your incomprehensible love in us so that we can know it experientially even when we cannot explain it intellectually. By the way, that's why I keep showing you this thing, because it's not a bumper sticker for me. When we talk about the discipleship pathway in this place, I want you to think about these movements. Why do we encourage people? If you want to grow in this place, meet up with the God who made you individually and collectively. Come, don't worry about what I'm saying, but take in the scripture of what God says about who you are. Why? Because we surrender to say, I, I need something bigger than me running my life. By the way, the God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for all of eternity invites you to not just know yourself individually, but to know yourself communally. So we invite you to surrender your identity in knowing who you are, not getting rid of it, but discovering who you are in community. And so yes, you plug in in any number of different spaces, large and small and everything in between. And Paul, of all the places we could say this, Paul here says we are, we are here for a cosmic purpose so that we surrender to living for more than ourselves and we live it out in service here, in local and foreign missions, and in our everyday witness of life and speech. Hear me, though. I'll put this up, and if you're like me, I see it as a checklist. I see it as a religious to-do list. Hear me. It's not. These are stations of surrender. And I encourage you to ask at every season of your life, what is the Holy Spirit inviting you to? Which one of these do you need to say, okay, I, I need to get on my knees. I need to just see you and know you more right now. Or I need to get out of my individualism a little bit. Help me come into community. Or I need to get out of my own selfishness. So lead me into living it out for you. Does that make sense? These are all stations practicing surrender. It's not a to-do list. Why it's a circle? Because you keep invited to to walk it out again and again and enter wherever the Holy Spirit leads you to be. Let's think about this too. When we think about this posture, it is a critical posture of bending the knee before our God. Why is it a critical posture, especially for a church like this? Can we be honest in a church like this? I mean, this is a compliment, but let's be honest because sometimes it's an obstacle. This is an incredibly talented, gifted, resourceful, and in many ways affluent church. And if we're not careful, 
We can think we can do it all on our own. Think about it, what we are called to do, to change and to care. And hear me, you might be tempted to say, you know, I've done a lot of change in my life. I've cared for a lot of people in my life in significant ways. Understand, if you are able to do it, whatever the it is, on your own resources and giftedness, you are not thinking big enough. Because God has created us for a cosmic purpose with God-sized visions and dreams, and only God can make it happen. So we come and practice dependence and surrender because we need God's power to do the things God has called us to do, not our own. Which is really the, the whole twist of this in the first place. So we get to our final piece of the identity, but I want to go kind of through the back door to get at that. Because what Paul says here is, I want to tell you something about God's identity first. And what does he say in this glorious doxology is the fancy word, the ending of this prayer. What does he say? He says, our God is able. And in this inc incredible to recognize for all of those little kids raking leaves moments in our hearts, isn't it wonderful to know when we are not able to do whatever it is, the God that we worship, the one we are kneeling to, is the God who is able. Now listen to his language. It's so powerful to me. Verses 21, 20 and 21. He says, now to him who is able to do, listen to this language, immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. In fact, it's even more than that. I love this. If you read this in the Greek, it's amazing. Paul invents a word here. Because he's so fired up about the picture he wants to give you of our God. He invents a word. The word itself already means more. He said, so think about this way. I can imagine this. And he said, God who does more. And then he sticks a word on the front of it. And it's abundantly more. And then he stuck another word in front of it. So here's literally what it says. The God who is able to do super abundantly more than all we ask or imagine. How about that? This is the God we worship. Super abundantly more than all we ask or imagine. So just for a moment, I want you to imagine the world you long to be a part of. Can you imagine it? Can you imagine what it would look like for God to take a group of people in Bryan College Station and use that group, broken as we are, to change the city and the community and the country and the world? What can you imagine? I don't know about you, but I can imagine a lot. I can imagine young people of every stripe Students, young people, refusing to sell out or settle for cheap imitations of God's dream for your life. I can imagine that. I can imagine a spiritual awakening in the city. You know what a spiritual awakening is? Different than a revival, that's about church. Awakening is when people who don't know God, who have been playing around in things that are, that are, that are empty and they don't even know it, people are awakened to. Can you imagine it? I can imagine people coming in droves to churches of all different heritages and stripes, just in droves coming to pray and, and just wearing out the baptistries, hungering for prayer, hungering for a life that's bigger than anything they knew. I can imagine that, can't you? It's happened in history, happened at Pentecost, it's happened in this country. And I can imagine revival for our churches. Can you imagine this? Can you imagine churches who refuse to fight anymore about which church is right and which church is best, and they hold on to their convictions, but they do it in unity and love. I can imagine churches selling out to discipleship and unity first before all things. I can imagine that, can't you? 
I can imagine races and tribes and colors and creeds coming together, seeking the one who draws us all together. I can imagine that. I can imagine the poor and the marginalized feeling just as welcome and comfortable in our churches as the prosperous and successful do. I can imagine that. Can you? Now to him who was able to do super abundantly more than all we ask or imagine. That's the one we approach. And that's where we finally get our identity. Because what he says is God is able, but guess what? Guess what? Guess what? So are you. You are able. And we added that to the list. Now all of these things are true. You're chosen for a purpose and you're filthy, stinking, spiritually rich and you're alive in ways you never knew and you belong. And listen to me, in all those moments you feel powerless, hear this, you are able, not because of your giftedness, not because of your resources, not because you're in the right church, but because you are connected to the God who is able. And so here's the real secret I've been holding back on for the last three plus weeks now. I pitched this as hearing our identity. But that's not really the truth because it's really not about us. All of these things are actually true about us only because they were first true about God. And we get in on God and that's why we inherit Paul's language, all of this. Think about it. God is the one who had the purpose before the creation of the world. We step into it. God is the one who is lavishly rich in everything that matters. And it says we inherit that. God is the one who is alive in ways we would never know. Think about this. They killed him and he didn't stay dead. He's alive. And God belongs. You might say, how does God belong? Oh, because Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has been living in dynamic, breathless, adventurous community for all of eternity, and he invites us into it. God is belonging. And you better believe God is able to do astronomically, cosmically more than anything you can dream of. And because of all of that, you, in the country big enough for your dreams, in Christ, you are all these things too. Isn't that awesome? Because God is present among God's people. And yes, we'll get to the doing. It's the next part of it. But we've got to see this first. It reminds me of one of my favorite memories as a young parent. Years ago, our oldest daughter was about to do her first public performance. She was doing ballet. And we're getting ready for the recital. I mean, she was tiny. We're getting for the recital, and she came out, and I loved it. She, when she came out of the back, instead of coming out and stopping at her mark, she walked all the way to the front of the stage, and she did this. What was she doing? What was she doing? She was looking for her mother and her father. It was one of the warmest moments of my heart. I loved it because she looked, and I'm a goof, man. I'm over there, you know, and... And she looked at me, and like, you were getting ready to do the ballet. She said, hello, Daddy. <laughs> and I showed her the sign that we do from a long way away. We do that that says, if I can't say it to you, I want you to see it. I love you. I love you. I share that story because I believe there is a little child in every single one of us that longs to know their cosmic heavenly father is looking at him, not in judgment. And not in terror, but saying with my hands, I show you, I desperately, boundlessly 
love you. And hear me, Paul has been inventing words to tell you for three chapters that God is here. He is right here and he's not in the crowd watching you. He is on the stage fulfilling his cosmic purpose and pulling you into it. That is who you are. And what, Paul would say, is our response to a God like that. We get on our knees and we say, glory, glory to the one who is able to do super abundantly more than all we ask, imagine, fathom, or dream. Father, that's what we say, not just with our words or our songs, but with our souls. How can we ever, ever thank you enough? How can we ever praise you enough, serve you enough? Not because we have to make up anything. We just want to be part of the Father who longs to let us know how deeply he loves us. We beg you to answer this prayer that Paul wrote 2,000 years ago for us. Give us the eyes to see, the minds to comprehend what is incomprehensible. How breathtakingly boundless is your love for us and your purpose for us in Christ. Father, let us receive it so that we might give and share it as you are repairing this broken and being healed world. We pray this in the glorious resurrection name of Jesus Christ. Amen.